So if I asked you, would you rather be a celebrity, an influencer, or a hero, which one would you choose? Which one of those three? Celebrity, influencer, or hero? Uh, influencer is the one that I sort of had to throw in there because I'm trying to be hip <laughs> and trying to be with it. That's like the big thing right now. People want to be influencers. Um, and some of us might say, like, celebrity, influencer, hero, like, what's really the distinction between any of those? Because you really could be one of those and be all those, but you also be one of those and be none of the other ones either as well. Um, but just kind of thinking about that, what would you rather be? Would you rather be a celebrity, an influencer, or a hero? I think in our culture today, we really value uh, being known and feeling like other people know who you are. And so that sort of has maybe contributed to the rise in people wanting to become celebrities, but also people wanting to be influencers in the world. And I would suggest maybe to a lesser degree, the reason why people sometimes want to be heroes. Now, a big part of the distinction in my mind between you know, sort of the celebrity influencer kind of person and being a hero is the idea of sacrifice. Because you can be a celebrity and be an influencer without really having to sacrifice much, if anything. Now, granted, the celebrity status, I, I was hearing about an interview, somebody was talking about uh, David Beckham, the famous soccer player, really can't go anywhere without being just bombarded with people trying to take pictures and get all up in his personal space, no matter where he is. Like, there's something that goes along with being a celebrity, right? But on the flip side, being a hero has a little bit more of a cost that involves others that's helping other people, and it's sort of focusing on other people. Uh, a step beyond that, I would suggest to you that maybe one of the reasons that we sort of have this idea of superheroes uh, and the reason that superheroes are sort of popular is because it sort of explains how people, how just sort of other people uh, can choose to sacrifice themselves for the sake of other people because they have superpowers, right? And it sort of gives us this explanation and this reason, this justification for why when we look at our own lives, <laughs> we're not always willing to sacrifice for somebody else. Well, we can say, well, the reason why that hero can do that is because they're a superhero. They have superpowers. And so they're, you know, sort of different. We sort of separate ourselves from that person. And it sort of, again, provides us that justification for our unwillingness sometimes to sacrifice for others. And it provides an explanation for how other people can sometimes sacrifice for other people, something that we're not always able to do. And yet, we know this, there are heroes all around us. In fact, there's heroes in this room in some ways, uh, people who are caretakers for family members or, or people they don't even know and, and spending years, if not decades, caring for someone they love. And there's people who have mentored at-risk youth and helped change the trajectory of someone's life, a, a student's life. There's first responders, and you can go on and on with the list of, of sort of the everyday heroes that we know about that, that are willing to sacrifice and to put themselves in harm's way. I think another obstacle, though, for some of us um, when we want to sort of think about how we could become a hero, whether that's, you know, sort of the, the glamour status hero or just, again, sort of that everyday hero, another obstacle is perspective that our perspective of how we see that situation or how we see that opportunity is, is a little bit different. Now, this perspective is both our perspective of heroes, but I think it's also important to think about how heroes actually look at situations, the perspective they have when they look at a situation. And with our perspective of heroes, a lot of times, what do we do? We tend to put them up on a pedestal. And in some ways, that's to sort of give them honor and sort of show respect to, to a hero who's done something amazing that we sort of admire. But I think in another way, it's also a way to sort of, again, distance them from us because we sort of know that we're not on the same level as them or we don't have the same um, willingness to sacrifice that they might have. And yet, we're captivated at times by these stories of people that are willing to sacrifice themselves. And I, I was reading some stories of heroes this week, and I just think, 
oh my goodness. Like in those moments, they had this perspective. They could see things. They could sort of slow down their mind. They could sort of think clearly, which uh, sometimes I don't do in regular everyday events, let alone in those crisis moments when you need to be sort of a hero. Uh, and we're captivated by these stories of, of, of these people that are willing to sacrifice and, and do these things. And I think part of the intrigue for us might be the abnormality of seeing this selfless act, this desire to be selfless and to give of themselves with so many people around us seemingly only concerned about themselves. It's that contrast, right? You see the whole rest of the world every day, it seems like everybody's just concerned with their own stuff. And then you see this act of or heroism and you think, wow, that's amazing. I think part of the intrigue also might be that we want to be like them. We want to, we want to aspire to be like a hero. Uh, maybe even we feel like we should be like them because they're you know, sort of a role model or somebody in our life like that. Uh, part of the intrigue might also be that, that these heroes have so much to give and so much to lose, and yet they still choose to sacrifice in those moments. They're willing to give up their own life or their opportunities with their kids and their family to help someone else. And unfortunately, those same things that sort of intrigue us about heroes are also the same things that can be obstacles and keep us from seizing the opportunities for ourselves to be a hero in someone's life. And our lack of willingness to sacrifice for the sake of others, it it can make us feel like being a hero is out of reach because we know ourselves. We we know that we're not that selfless, right? We know that we uh, make excuses. uh, We can find any reason not to do something, right? I don't know about you, but I can. We can convince ourselves, and even at times we can deceive ourselves into thinking that we couldn't do that or that, you know, it's maybe out of reach for us. And we sort of wonder if that time came in our lives and if that moment came when we needed to sacrifice ourselves for others, we ask ourselves, would we do that, right? We wonder, would we actually be willing to do that situation? We wonder if that situation arose where I needed to give of myself, I need to give of my time, my energy, uh, put myself in danger, I need to put myself in harm's way for someone else, would I actually do that? And as we're going to see from the story of Esther today, those questions actually help provide the answers for how we can actually be that in someone's life and be the hero that maybe God wants us to be. So we're continuing this series called Divine uh, Coincidence, and we're looking at um, the story of Esther. And that title, uh, it might seem like a bit of an oxymoron, uh, because coincidence means a remarkable set of events or circumstances happening or existing at the same time And the key part is the last part, without apparent orchestration. And that without apparent orchestration, if you're saying, well, it's divine uh, coincidence, then that sort of means that somehow God, the divine, is somehow involved in that. And that's sort of what we are referencing. We're sort of removing that without apparent orchestration. Though, at times, when we're going through situations in life, it sort of seems like, God, where are you? We're not so sure what's happening. Which really ties nicely to the book of Esther, because if you don't know, Esther is the only book in the Bible that doesn't directly name God, and God is seemingly not uh, present. It doesn't, you don't necessarily know where he is, what he is doing in this whole situation. And it might seem strange to focus on that book, but that's sort of the connection, that sometimes it seems like there is no orchestration going on in these events, and yet you look back, or over time, you see things, and you see the way that events and situations, things were sort of put together in a way that does seem like God is there. And so we said last week that um, one of the reasons that the author doesn't, maybe one of the reasons, we don't know exactly, but maybe one of the reasons the author doesn't include God uh, by name in the Bible is that, so the audience can sort of remember that God is at work even when we don't see him working. Even when we can't see him directly, we can know that God is still working behind the scenes and sort of moving pieces around. And because even though God is not mentioned by name, he is present, he is working. And in this book of Esther, hopefully you'll see that that's sort of the case behind the scenes. And uh, the Bible Project, I love what the Bible Project says. We said this last week. The Bible Project describes Esther as an invitation 
to look for God's activity. And I think we all need those invitations. We need to take those opportunities to look for God's activity around us, especially when you're in a season that seems like, where is God? I don't feel like I've heard from God in a while. And that is what we have this opportunity to. And and this whole idea of of God working behind the scenes and not necessarily seeing him, it sort of goes to a principle that we haven't talked about a lot, but I want to highlight again real quick, the idea of providence, the idea that God is working behind the scenes. Uh, Tony Evans says this, he says, God's providence is the miraculous and often mysterious way he intersects and interconnects people and events to bring about his sovereign will and purposes. All those big words to sort of say what he wants to happen, basically. That God's unseen hand is at work. And that's sort of what providence is. And that's what the story of Esther sort of invites us to see that God is working behind the scenes in ways that we can't understand always or we don't always see initially. But it's in sort of the real life messes. And we talk about this, the the moral ambiguity of life where we're not exactly sure what are we supposed to do and what's the right or wrong thing. And God is working behind the scenes throughout history. And we can trust in God. We can trust in him through that. So the story that we're going to jump into, the second part of the story that we're going to jump into, we talked about last week with Esther. Um, the, the first part is this is taking place in the, the Persian Empire. If you like history, this is sort of the Persian Empire's rise, uh, particularly in the capital of Susa, um, which is uh, near uh, modern-day Iran and Iraq, kind of in the southern border there. Um, and the Persian Empire at this time is pretty vast. It has 127 provinces, and it spans all the way from Ethiopia to almost to India and Asia Minor and all that area. And it's a big deal. And so we start off with the story of Esther with the king of the empire, Xerxes, He's sort of declaring how great he is, having this big feast, this big party, to sort of remind everybody how big he is and how important he is. Potentially, it was to get ready for a war and to sort of rally support for a war that he was about to start. We don't know exactly, but he, he's got this big party. At this party, he asked his wife, the queen, Vashti, to come and sort of do this performance for the people in the party, and she refuses. She doesn't want anything to do with it. So he decides he's going to get rid of her, and he's given this advice to sort of have this beauty pageant to get a new queen. And that's where we're sort of introduced to two Jewish people um, from the nation of Israel that had been exiled long ago. Their family members had been exiled. They had been long removed from Israel. Mordecai and Esther. Now, Esther was orphaned, but she was taken care of by her cousin, Mordecai. He was the one who helped raise her. And so Esther is sort of maybe forced into entering this beauty contest. It's not exactly clear, but she's entered into this beauty contest uh, to become the new queen, which leads to some interesting stories, as we talked about last week. There's some interesting pieces to this story of Esther because she's entered into this, but it also likely leads to some painful encounters for the characters, maybe particularly Esther, and all the other sort of people that are involved in this interesting scheme that, that Xerxes has. And since we live in a world after Jesus, it's very easy for us to sort of jump in and say, well, that doesn't seem right, and there's a bunch of problems with this story, and there are, but that's part of the good thing about having Jesus who elevated the status of all people, including women, that we can see that. And yet, as we're going to see in this story, there's still some divine coincidences that are happening that God seems to be happening and, and working through people and working through situations that might seem potentially random and might not seem connected, and yet God is still working through this. So through that process of the beauty, cont- beauty contest, Esther becomes queen. Our cousin Mordecai becomes an official serving King Xerxes. And Mordecai just happens, again, this is the coincidence, just happens to be at the right place at the right time where he overhears some um, guards of the king plotting to kill the king. So he hears that, he passes it on to Esther, who passes it on to Xerxes, and, and Mordecai is rewarded. He's given the credit for, for stopping this plan to kill the king. But again, God's not necessarily mentioned in that. God's not mentioned in those first two chapters. Again, God's not mentioned through the whole book. But as we saw last week, our point is that when God seems absent, his invisible hand is still at work. 
So today we're going to jump forward in the story four more years after uh, Esther becomes queen and four years after Mordecai saves the king. So we're going to start in Esther chapter 3. If you want to follow along in the Bible app, you're welcome to do that. Um, I don't know if the notes got onto the church online tab uh, there, but you can follow along in the Bible app if you want to. Um, We should find our notes there as well. So uh, we'll also have them on the screen. Esther chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Again, this is four years after Esther becomes queen. Sometime later, King Xerxes promoted Haman, a new character, son of uh, Hamadatha, the Agagite, over all other nobles, making him the most powerful official in the empire. All the king's officials would bow down before Haman to show him respect whenever he passed by, for so the king had commanded. But Mordecai refused to bow down or show him respect. And so we're introduced to this new character, Haman, who's not Persian, also just like Esther and Mordecai are not Persian. Um, but interestingly, Haman is a descendant from a group of people that had caused the Jewish people some problems. He's a descendant of somebody that's really caused some problems for the Israelites, the Jew- Jewish people, hundreds of years prior to this, so a long time before that. But the author's saying, he's sort of reminding the audience that this is a guy from that group of people that's caused us problems and sort of reminding them about the history between the ancestors of these groups of people. And we don't necessarily know the reason why, but some reason, for some reason, the king elevates Haman in his, in his, uh, in his um, position of power in the empire to, to basically the most powerful person other than the king, uh, which on some level uh, somehow required the people to bow to Haman. And it wasn't necessarily a bowing in the sense of saying necessarily he's like God or he's divine or something like that, worshiping, but it was, it was a really important sign of respect, most likely. And so we're not exactly sure, but for some reason, Mordecai doesn't do that. And we don't know exactly why. Maybe he interpreted it as it was a sign of worship, but most scholars seem to think that it wasn't necessarily a sign of worship. But whatever the case is, Mordecai does not bow for Haman. Continue on. Then the palace officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why are you disobeying the king's command? They spoke to him day after day, but he still refused to comply with the order. So they spoke to Haman about this to see if he would tolerate Mordecai's conduct. Since Mordecai had told them he was a Jew, which is sort of the first moment that's instilled into the story that the people in the story know that Mordecai and Esther are not Jews, but mostly Mordecai at this point, I guess. Verse 5, when Haman saw that Mordecai would not bow down or show show him respect, he was filled with rage. That basically Haman can't stand that there's one guy, whether or not everybody else is bowing or not, right? This is sort of the power trip that people have. Whether or not everybody else is bowing to him, He doesn't like that one person's not bowing to him, and so it sort of just consumes him. Um, And so it bothers him, it festers with him. It it bothers him so much that he doesn't want to just punish Haman, or he doesn't want to just punish Mordecai. He wants to do something more. Verse 8, Then Haman approached King Xerxes and said, There is a certain race of people. (laughs) Very quickly we jump to race all of a sudden, right? It's very quickly how racism can can just infiltrate into most, any decision, really. Then then Haman approached King Xerxes and said, There's a certain race of people scattered throughout your provinces of your empire who keep themselves separate from everyone else. Their laws are different from those of any other people, and they refuse to obey the laws of the king. So it is not in the king's interest to let them live. If it pleases the king, issue a decree that they be destroyed, and I will give 10,000 large sacks of silver to the government officials or government administrators to be deposited in the royal treasury. Now, the king agrees to let Haman do this thing uh, to, to execute these people, even though Haman doesn't explicitly state, or we don't have it recorded, that he explicitly states which race of people or which group of people he's going to kill. 
And we find out that this race of people is the Jewish people, all the Israelites that, are, that have been exiled into this foreign land and then sort of transferred on and just didn't go back to their homeland. These people that were all there, but not just them, anywhere around, around the world, basically, they're going to be killed. And even though the queen doesn't know that his queen is Jewish, he, he allows this to happen. He agrees to it. He puts his authority behind it to kill off all the Jewish people. Now, it's estimated that the annual income of the Persian Empire was about 15,000 large sacks of silver. So basically what Haman's saying is, I'm going to give you two-thirds of a year's worth of the income for the country based on doing this one thing. And likely that money was going to come from plundering all the Jewish people, taking all their stuff, and then depositing it in the government. And that's a huge amount, right? That's a big deal. That's a lot of money that Haman's saying is going to come in. Now the story shifts back to Mordecai and Esther, who, who seem to, at this point, if you're reading the story, it sort of just seems like they're the only hope. Because again, God doesn't seem to be present. And so these are the Jewish people that have some level of influence. Maybe they can do something. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 4. When Mordecai learned about all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on burlap and ashes, and went out into the city crying with a loud and bitter wail. That Mordecai founds out what Haman's done, and he's all distressed about it. He's mourning bitterly. He's tore his clothes. He's wearing burlap as a sign of great distress. We, we wouldn't do that because wearing burlap would be distressful because it's so scratchy, right? It's like, why would you wear that? But that's what they did. That was sort of a sign of being in great distress, that he would put on these clothes. He would do these things. It was a sign of other people that something bad was happening to you, that you were in great distress about it. And, and I tend to imagine what happens next. I don't know about you, but when I think about this, I, I read it, I know what it says, but when I think about this, what I think about is Esther actually talking to Mordecai, like, and they're in the same room having this conversation, but we gotta keep in mind, that's not what's happening here. They're not actually talking to each other. They're sending messengers to each other to pass on the message back and forth. They're not even actually in the same room together talking. And I think that adds a level of complexity to this conversation of what's gonna happen next. Verse four, when Queen Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai and how he was wearing the burlap, uh, she was deeply distressed. She sent clothing to him to replace the burlap, but he refused it. Then Esther sent for Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed as her attendant. She ordered him to go to Mordecai and find out what was troubling him and why he was in mourning. Verse 6, so Hathach went out to Mordecai in the square in front of the palace gate. Verse 7, Mordecai told him the whole story, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai gave Hathach a copy of the decree issued in Susa that called for the death of all the Jews. He asked Hathach to show it to Esther and explain the situation to her. He also asked Hathach to direct her to go to the king to beg for mercy and plead for her people. So Hathach returned to Esther with Mordecai's message. That basically Mordecai challenges his cousin, challenges this woman who he's raised, who's this beautiful queen, um, who's this beautiful woman in, in this position of power, to go to the king and to make a request to save all our people. But Esther is very hesitant to do that, and for good reason, as we're going to see. She replies with this in verse 11, all the king's officials and even the people in the provinces know that anyone who appears before the king and is in her court without being invited is doomed to die unless the king holds out his gold scepter. And the king has not called for me to come to him for 30 
days. And it's kind of interesting, uh, actual historian, not, not religious, but just a historian, Herodotus, actually notes that this offense and this punishment was actually something that was a part of the Persian Empire. It was actually a significant thing, that, that if you pr- approach the Persian king, especially to sort of combat or to tell him that you disagree with his decisions, uh, that's not a good thing. You shouldn't do that. Uh, don't have to look too much further back than Queen Vashti. When she disagreed and did not follow what the king said, she was banished and not the queen anymore. And so this is a real thing. And the proper protocol would be for if someone wants to talk to the king, you have to request a meeting with the king through his messengers. And then basically you just sort of wait for him to come to you and to to say he's going to have a meeting. But Esther sort of informs Mordecai and maybe tells him what's going on, that the king hasn't called on me in 30 days. And so I'm not sure sort of where my standing is with the king right now. And we know that in this moment, in this situation rather, that um, the king is not necessarily a great husband. He's not necessarily looking out for the best interests of his wife because he has wives and other people, other women in his, in his uh, relationships. And he's just not a devoted husband. And so Esther has good reason to question whether the king is going to look on her with favor. And even if she does go to him, if he's going to forgive her or sort of allow her to speak to him in this moment. Now, many people, and maybe some of you, if you sort of in that moment of conflict when somebody gives you a little bit of pushback, we're like, oh, okay, I'll just like leave it alone. I won't push on anymore. That doesn't seem to be Mordecai's temperament <laughs> or his personality. He pushes any further. And maybe because the situation sort of requires it, right? He's on the face, looking at the face of death for him and his, his whole nation, his whole people, group of people. Mordecai continues pushing forward. He challenges her again. He says, don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all other Jews are killed because she's also Jewish. So why do you think you're going to survive if this, this decree is for all Jews to be killed? Verse 14. This is kind of the, the power, power verse of the whole, whole book, really. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place. But you and your relatives will die. Maybe sort of a reference that he's going to die, right? Because he is a relative of hers. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. That Mordecai, in, in his own way, again, not, not directly talking about God, but he's sort of referencing his confidence in something outside of him and outside of his nation, outside of the Persian Empire, something's going to happen. And, and whether that's based on his own experience or his own knowledge of God, somehow he's sort of referencing his confidence that, that, that God is going to fulfill his promises, that, that God is going to take care of this people or someone's going to take care of this group of people even when God seems absent. And Mordecai responds to Esther's hesitation and her rightful hesitation uh, about trying to sort of broaden her, her perspective, to see something bigger than just her moment, than just her life, which she's rightfully worried is going to be ended, but to see something bigger, that there is a bigger story here at work and you could have a part to play in it. That might be part of the reason that you're even king right now. That Mordecai is arguing from the perspective that someone, we don't know exactly who, because again, they're not referenced, God, we would say, but someone's invisible hand is at work in this situation for the Jewish people. And Esther, you have a chance to be used by that hand, whatever that might look like. And Mordecai is saying to this girl, again, this girl who's not been trained, it's not like she went to like poli-sci classes <laughs> before this, or it's not like she went to, you know, how to, how to talk to, to um, people in high positions of power, or, uh, leadership classes, or any, like she's not been prepared for it in any sort of way like that. Uh, she doesn't know the rest of her story. She doesn't know how her story is going to end. And yet Mordecai challenges her and, and sort of encourages her and pushes her to see something bigger than her life, that her life has not been brought to this point just so that she can have a bigger wardrobe. 
Her, her life has not been brought to this point so that she can just sort of accumulate jewelry and amazing fragrances and all this lavish lifestyle she probably has. She's not been brought to this point in her life to become the most desirable and attractive woman in the, in the area, though she is that apparently. She's not been brought to this point for any of the reasons even that the king might have brought her to this point. Mordecai's calling her to something that's even bigger than what the king might have initially had in mind for her to be queen. And Mordecai says to Esther that you've been brought to this point in your life, that this is where you are, and this might be the reason that all the other stuff before that has happened. And it's to work for justice, to, to spare people great suffering, to oppose a man who is evil, and he wants to do bad things and is consumed with hatred, to be a part of God's plan, ultimately the biggest picture of it, to be a part of God's plan to redeem our world. So pause for a second. That's Esther. But you hopefully can very quickly see the, the ties to your life and to my life. What reasons have you been brought to this point in your life? What might some of those reasons be? I would suggest some reasons it's not is not to just accumulate more stuff. But we do that, don't we? We accumulate more stuff. All right, I would suggest to you that it's not to build a bigger status or to have a better reputation with other people. It's not to become the most desirable, most attractive man or woman in the world. That's not our job either, just like it's not Esther's necessarily. That you were not brought to this point in your life for anything so small as just you. That we were brought to this point in our lives for something much bigger than us. Even if it's just one other person, or it could be hundreds of other people. Our lives were brought to this point for something bigger than just us. That you, like Esther, have been brought to this point in your life to, to work for justice, again, for at least one other person. You've been brought to this point in your life to spare people great suffering where, when you can, to bring healing to a needy world, to oppose evil and greedy and hate-filled people, and ultimately, to be a part of God's plan to redeem a broken world. And when such a time comes, God wants to use us for a bigger purpose than just ourselves. And it's so easy in this life to go through our schedules, to go through our days, to go through our routines, just focused about us. But God has something so much bigger than that. Okay, back into the story of Esther. Mordecai helps Esther sort of, again, in this moment, she, he helps her to sort of discern God's presence, God's activity in the world, God's calling on her life specifically. And then he sort of issues her this incredible challenge to challenge her to say that if you say no now, if you miss this opportunity, you might miss the very reason that you are here. This is my, you might miss the very opportunity that God has given you. And if you think this is all about you and your comfort and your safety, your security, I think Mordecai says you're missing the point. And I think he probably says that to us as well. So Esther tells Mordecai that, that um, she wants to basically have three days to go and fast and pray. And, and she tells Mordecai to go tell the rest of the Jews to do that. She's wanting her close personal attendants and people to also fast and pray with her, which again is sort of another indication. Why, why would you fast and pray without a God that you're fasting and praying to? Most people don't do that. And so it's again, sort of another, sort of another hint that there, there is a belief in this God out there. That basically she's not going to attempt to achieve this mission based on her own beauty, based on her own uh, cleverness, her own influence, her own possessions, her own uh, opportunity and influence. That as great as those things might be, Esther sort of acknowledges those things on her own are not going to be sufficient. So she asks for this time to fast and pray. Uh, John Orberg describes her response this way. I just think it's so helpful, so, so powerful. She responds with words 
after Mordecai says this, she responds with words that are as significant, or sorry, as, as magnificent in their courage as Mordecai's were in their challenge. She says this, and then, though it is against the law, I will go in to see the king. And this is a powerful line. If I must die, I must die. Which, again, is so easy for me to read right now, right? But to be in that moment when it's really facing you that that is potentially your future of what could happen if you make decisions that you're going to make. Uh, and it's, I think it's so helpful also to just highlight that instead of a, a male hero having the courage and the strength to go and do this, at this moment we have a female hero who has the strength and courage to do this in the face of saving a man and saving a whole nation potentially after that. And so Esther is able to take this step, I think, in part because Mordecai helps her to see a bigger perspective than just her own life, which she was sort of focused on just her life initially, right? She's, for good reason, she's going to potentially die for what she has to do. That she's willing, though, to sacrifice herself now for the sake of others. She isn't focused on her safety or self-preservation. She isn't focused on all the new stuff that likely she's accumulated over these years of becoming the queen. She isn't prioritizing herself at the expense of others, And one of our points for today also is that when God gives you a bigger perspective, he can help you sacrifice for others. Because on our own, it seems too daunting, right? To sacrifice ourselves, to sacrifice things that we've worked our whole life for at times, to sacrifice for people that we love and care about for something else, like that just, it doesn't, it seems so hard. And yet, when you have this bigger perspective that God gives you, he then can help you be willing to sacrifice for others. So what about us? Uh, Who knows? What if perhaps you were made for such a time as this. And and I don't know exactly what that looks like for you. That's part of the challenge, and that's part of where God can work and His Holy Spirit can speak to you directly. I I don't know what the situation looks like for you. We sort of generally know what the, the world looks like for all of us, but maybe your world specifically has some things that look different than my world and the rest of our world. Uh, So what is that reason? What could potentially be that reason? And so this week, I want to challenge you to sort of ask some of these questions or maybe to sort of reflect on some of these questions uh, about why. Why might God have you in this moment right now with all the circumstances around you? Why might God have you here? Is, Is there something bigger? Is there a bigger purpose, a bigger perspective that you might need to have? Why do you have that job that you have right now? Why do you have that company or that business that you're, you're in, in relationship with or have connections to? Why are you connected to the homeowners association or the coaching group or the, the thing, whatever? Why are you connected to those groups? Why are you connected to the other moms that you're connected to? Why are you connected to that neighbor? Why do you live in that neighborhood, that specific neighborhood? Why do you go to that school? Of all the schools that you could go to, why do you go to that School. Why do you have that friend that's sitting next to you that maybe bothers you so much, or maybe he's hurting so much, or maybe she's dealing with something? Why do you have that person sitting next to you in class? Why have you been entrusted with the talents, the gifts, the opportunities, the resources that you have? Why do you think God has you where you are? Because who knows if perhaps you were made for such a time as this, just like Esther, that there is a specific reason that you were made. And and we can't necessarily point to it right now, maybe. Maybe you can't even point to it the rest of your life. But there's something significant about the reason that God has you here. And maybe you can't see his activity around. You're not exactly sure what he's doing. But maybe you invite him into the process. Invite him in and say, God, I don't know what this moment is about, but God, would you help me to see it? Would you help me have the perspective to see it? And in those moments where I might need to sacrifice, would you help me be willing to sacrifice for others? So as we wrap up, um, one of the Bible commentaries that I was reading um, says this about the story of Esther, and it sort of reminds us that, that even in the court of a pagan king, 
through two Jews who were far removed from their homeland, God is still at work directing the path of history through the choices of those who do and who do not acknowledge him. Part of the purpose of this book is to encourage all of those who view God as absent or far away, he is in fact very present. And the story of Esther reminds us that there is sometimes an unseen God, at times unobserved God, unheard from God, that God has worked behind the scenes fulfilling his promises, that there is a God there. So how might this same God choose to use you for such a time as this? Because when God gives you a bigger perspective, he can help you to sacrifice for others. And when such a time comes, God can use us for a bigger perspective. That this last verse, verse 14, if you keep quiet, if you don't do what God says at a time like this, deliverance and relief will arise from some other place. But who knows if perhaps you were made for just such a time as this.